Colossians 1, 9-13, hear the word of the Lord. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. For some reason, for a long time, I would try to delay telling people that I'm a pastor when I would first meet them. And I'm I'm not sure all the reasons why I did that, but one of them was just so that people wouldn't get weird around me. Because they, they sometimes do that, and then they kind of go back through the conversation we've had up to that point, and they start apologizing for their foul language, and, and so on, and they get, get very awkward. And so that, that may be one of the reasons. Another is because in Mexico, most people didn't have a category. If I would say, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, they didn't really have a category for that. It's the same word as for shepherd. And I didn't look much like a, a shepherd. We were in big cities. And the only idea they had of a pastor was a Catholic priest. But I had a family. And so they didn't really have a category for me at, at, at times. Um, more recently, however, I try to tell people as soon as I meet them, as soon as I can, get it into the conversation that I'm a pastor. And maybe at this stage, I just want to save time. Because um, what it helps me to do is not waste their time or mine if they have no interest in speaking with someone who's a pastor. And then we can, we can make that clear very quickly. Or it can make an opportunity to get more quickly to the gospel. So it seems to be a, a help now and a time saver for me to tell people that I'm a pastor. And as, I'm, as I tell them that, um, I also often offer to pray for people. And this is interesting. People who have no connection to any sort of faith or any sort of church, when someone says, may I pray for you, it's, it's interesting to see how people are receptive to that. And there are a couple of statements of faith. There are probably many statements of faith that are not well received if we were just to blurt them out in a conversation. Um, but there are a couple of statements of faith that are well received in our society. And one is this. I'm thankful for you. Now, that's a statement of faith because it assumes what? You're thankful to God. And the other is, may I pray for you? And that's a statement of faith as well because you're saying, I believe in God and I believe He hears and I believe He answers prayer. So these two statements of faith are are ways to have conversations with people and they are the ways that in general the letters of the New Testament begin. I'm thankful for you. And I want to pray for you. And that's the transition that we're seeing today. Last week we looked at the thanksgiving that Paul and Timothy gave for the Colossians. As you recall, if you heard last week, Colossae, a city in Western Asia Minor, 
there was a church there, a thriving church there, that Paul himself had not planted, but it looks like one of his emissaries, Epaphras, had planted that church. And he was writing to this church along with Timothy. And Paul and Timothy gave thanks for the Colossians, faith, love, and hope, and for their fruitfulness in the gospel. And now, they make a transition. Make a transition after thanking God for these qualities in the Colossians in verse 9, and they say, and so. And now they launch into a prayer for the Colossian believers. Now, the, the fascinating thing about this prayer and this thanksgiving is that they are basically covering the same territory. Many of the same concepts that are in the thanksgiving show up in the prayer. Many of the same words, many of the same phrases. He takes these, or they take these same phrases that they used as thanksgiving, and then they turn them into request. For example, the same words uh, appear in the, the thanksgiving section and in the request section. These expressions, or these words, give thanks, pray, hear, have, all, bearing fruit and increasing, from the day, know or knowledge, spirit or spiritual, good, God, Father, and saints. So the same vocabulary they used for thanksgiving, they also used it for prayer. Also, the words in or into, in or into appear, I counted 18 times, maybe there are more, indicating where the Colossians were, and where they were going, in and unto, or into. Now, in addition to being a beautifully balanced section of prayer, by taking the same concepts, the same words, the same phrases, and repurposing them for request, in addition to being a beautiful little section of literature, this, this prayer, it also indicates something. It indicates that no matter how far we have come in our knowledge of God, in our growth in grace, in our faith, in our love, in our hope, in our fruitfulness, there is always more. Because if they had arrived, if they were just in and not into, not unto, then there would be no reason to ask these things. But even though they recognized the great growth that had taken place in these believers, they, they took these same concepts and they prayed that they would go on and, and, and develop more and more in these areas. Now, as in most of his letters, Paul, and here along with Timothy, described his constant prayer. I constantly pray. I pray for you without ceasing. Verse 9, And from the day we heard, from the day, that's the second time he says from the day. He says from the day you heard, the gospel, and now he says, from the day we heard about your faith. So from the day we heard, and notice that it's still second or first person plural here. Oftentimes Paul drops it when it's just a courtesy to include Timothy, but it looks like Timothy's still very active in the writing here. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray. We have not ceased to pray. Now, that is one of the principles of prayer, um, ceaselessness. Constancy. That is, that is one of the, the, the basic principles of prayer for successful prayer lives, for effective prayer lives, that it be constant, that it be consistent. 
uh, Jesus taught about that, didn't He? He taught about that, that parable of that, that irritatingly relentless widow lady who wore down the unjust judge and He finally, finally gave her justice. Why? Because she was so persistent and she wouldn't let Him go. And He says that's how we should be in prayer. And if you could wear an unjust judge down like that, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father be, be apt to, to respond to your prayer? So persistence and constancy. But it's also one of the great challenges in prayer, isn't it? It's one of the hardest things, isn't it? We, we know that, that we should pray regularly, constantly. But it, it's hard to keep it going. It's hard to sustain it. We get distracted. We get busy. Uh, we have complications in our, our lives. We say, okay, this year, I'm going to spend this much time in prayer every day in the morning. And, and, and we start well, and we mean well. And, and we say, and, and in the family, I'm going to pray with my husband. I'm going to pray with my wife regularly. And we're going to do it at this time of day. Or, or in our family, we're going to gather the kids around, and we're going to have a little bit of reflection on the Word, and, and we're going to pray, and this is going to be a constant thing in our lives. And you know as well as I do, because I've been through it as well, it, it's difficult to sustain. So here this is a, as a reminder about the importance of the constancy of prayer. And as I often encourage people, it sounds like perhaps a defeatist, defeatist, uh, I was talking with somebody this week about it, but if it's, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. And so, in other words, do it, do it, do something at least. Pray some with your family, with your, with your wife, with your husband, with your children, by yourself. Something is always better than nothing. And so don't get discouraged at the, 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 the poorness of what looks like your efforts, but but continue on and just just do something to develop that, that constancy in prayer. And different times of life have different times of, of availability for prayer. We're empty nesters now. We don't have little kids running around and so on. I don't have two or three jobs going on at the same time. And so, so there's, a, there's a freedom that we have that we didn't have before. And I understand that. And so there are opportunities. But whatever the opportunity, whatever the stage in life you might be, just, just do something. To have prayer a constant part of your life, a constant part of your marriage, a constant part of your family as well. Well, the main request here, it it breaks down into a number of different aspects, but the main request here is that the Colossians would be filled. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled, and here it is, with the knowledge of His will with the knowledge of His will. Then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so, the prayer goes on from there, but the prayer is basically that believers would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for us. The knowledge of His will for us. Now, God's will is objective. It exists outside of us. And so we need to understand what that will is. We need to have a knowledge of His will, which exists outside of our perception thereof. But we do need to to understand it. We need to grasp that. And how might we do that? Well, how can God be understood? God can be known. He can be understood. His, His will can be perceived in as much as He reveals it to us. 
we do not have any way to get that from Him unless He gives it to us. Now, the great thing is, is that we have it revealed. And the amazing thing is, is that it's revealed and it's written down and it's been preserved for generation after generation. What do we have in the Bible? We have God's will. And we have more access to it than the Colossians did. And so um, we have, we have the, the compilation, we have the collection of, the, of these books in, in ways that they didn't have at the beginning. And so we have these books, we have this Word of God, we have His will written down, but notice here, it says the knowledge of His will. It's a matter of studying His Word to know His will. What does God want from me? Well, read the Bible and you will find out. But notice it says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So it's not just a mechanical thing of read the Bible and you will know. When we find this word spiritual, oftentimes we ought to capitalize it. We noticed last week that strangely, in Paul's writings, there was only one mention in this whole letter explicitly of the Holy Spirit in verse, uh, in verse 6. Your love in the Spirit. But oftentimes when we find this, this word spiritual, we should think holy spiritual. Holy spiritual. So let's put these things together. We have the Word of God. It is objective. We have the will of God. But how are we to, how are we to understand that will? How are we to perceive it? How are we to apply it correctly? We need the Holy Spirit. We need spiritual understanding. We need spiritual wisdom. We find God's will expressed in His revealed Word and apply it through the, the, the Spirit who gives us the wisdom and understanding. We can think of all sorts of, of applications for this. What is God's will for you? Well, just, you, could, you could almost just pick at random and put your finger on, on any page of the Bible and you can find something of His will for you. But then there's the question, how do I... In my life, in my situation now, apply this and put this into practice. God tells you to love your neighbor. God tells you to get the gospel to all the nations. God tells you if you, you want to get married and you, you do marry, to marry another Christian. God tells you to discipline your children. God tells you to serve in your church. God tells you to, to forgive those who sin against you. God tells you to be generous with your possessions. God tells you all of these things. These are His will for you. But, but how do I... How do, I, how do I carry these out? God tells me to love my neighbor, but He doesn't tell me whether I should cut my neighbor's grass, or I should take a casserole to my neighbor, or I should buy some gasoline for my, for my neighbor, or if I should go visit my neighbor and pray for my neighbor. All of these things would be ways to, to love my neighbor. But, but what should I do? Well, I need the Spirit's wisdom. I need the Spirit's understanding. God says that I should, if I'm going to marry, that I should marry a believer, but He doesn't tell me her name. Uh, that, that's something that through the, the Spirit's wisdom and understanding, I need, to, I need to apply principles of the Word to, to figure that out. God tells me that, that I, as part of the church, need to get the Gospel to all the nations. Well, what's that mean for me? What's my part in that? Is it to go? Is it, is it to give? Is it, is it to pray? Is it a combination of all of these things? You see, you see, God has given us both the objective will in His Word, and He's given us spiritual understanding and wisdom. And that's the prayer, that we would have that. And the, the goal of that, the goal of that is in verse 10. Uh, understanding, knowledge, wisdom, and then verse 10, 
the rubber meets the road, so as to walk. So as to walk. This is practical. The will of God is not theoretical. It is practical for our life. So as to walk how? And walk is our manner of life. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. In all pleasing, it says, worthy of the Lord and fully pleasing to Him. Now, here it says that uh, he, he piles on expressions here. And, and from here on out, basically we have the definition of what that looks like. Three aspects, three activities that are worthy of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and fully pleasing to God. And here are the three activities. The first one is bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge. And then the second one in verse 11, being strengthened with all power. And then in verse 12, giving thanks. So three activities. This isn't exhaustive. This isn't a complete list. But this is a list of, of three activities that are fully pleasing to God. And they are worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this um, it starts with this, this phrase, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in knowledge. And if you were here last week, you say, that, that reminds me of what he said uh, in, in, in last week. He said that that's what the gospel was doing among the Colossians. That it was bearing fruit and increasing. And we saw, we saw how that meant... Uh, or rather, it was language from Genesis. Do you remember? Increase and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. So it was Genesis creation language applied to the gospel. Now notice, it's the same language here, but it's no longer being applied to the addition of new believers. That's what it meant, that the gospel was, was bearing fruit and increasing. More and more people were becoming Christians. But now... He uses, or they use, that same expression, but in a different way. Applying it to Christians, those who are already Christians. What's it say? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so this creation language, this bearing fruit and increasing language, is applied to the gospel in the first place, in bringing people to Christ, and it's applied to Christians in our growth, in our activity, and in our knowledge of God. This is fascinating. Because, because what, what can we say here? How do we fulfill the purpose for which we've been created? It, it seems to me this language is very intentional. It's, it's tying this in. Do you remember way back at the beginning when God made humanity, what did He say? He said, be fruitful and increase. How do we do that today? Well, in addition to filling up the planet with, with other humans, having children, in addition to that, we do that by, by getting the gospel out. That fulfills the purpose of creation to to bear fruit and to increase. And how do we do that as well? We do that by growing in every good work, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is the fulfillment of God's creation purpose for us. That's the first activity. That is bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. That is all pleasing to God. That is in accordance with Christ, worthy of Him. The second one, the second activity that is worthy of Christ and pleasing to God is being empowered with power or being strengthened with strength. In verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power. That's actually 
probably just because in English we try not to say powered with all power, but it's actually the, the same root there. May you be empowered with all power. Now that's an, that's an interesting activity because it's not an activity. It's passive. Isn't that interesting? So it's saying, may you be empowered with all power. And then you say, well, what power? And then he says, according to his glorious might. So by the measure of his glorious might, and his glorious might is immeasurable. So he's talking about some sort of immeasurable almighty power that that we might experience. But it's not our power. Interesting. So this is an activity that's not our activity in one sense. But at the same time, it's something that we should do. We should be being empowered. And so, how can we be being empowered? How can, how can we have this power uh, shown in our lives? Well, it's faith. It's reliance. We can, this isn't our power. So, how, what, what's our part of this? Well, it's to trust. It's to rely. It's to, it's to exercise this, this power that is available to us. And notice... Notice the purpose of this power. It is to persevere with joy. To persevere with joy. If, if you have this kind of power, if, you, if you're relying on this power, you have access to this power, it will be seen in all endurance and patience or perseverance with joy. Now, that, that's a fascinating combination. And it may be, I hesitate to say absolutely, but it may be, and at least as far as I can tell, this is a uniquely Christian combination. Perseverance with all joy. You find perseverance in some philosophies and religion, and you find aspects of joy in some philosophies and religion, but perseverance with joy is is a combination that we find in Christianity, and, and I think in Christianity alone, in the time of Jesus, and in the time of Paul, we know that because Paul encountered these. There were a couple of philosophical schools. Paul was dragged before them uh, in uh, Athens at Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and there were the Epicureans and there were the Stoics. And the Epicureans were all about pleasure, maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. So we could say, whether we want to call that true joy or not, we could say they were all about happiness. They were all about joy, maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain. But I wouldn't put them in charge of some big project, some difficult project that would take years and years to accomplish. Uh, Why? They're all about maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. And then, on the other hand, there were the Stoics. There were the Stoics, and they were all about doing their duty. They believed in providence. And they believe that, that providence has given us as humans a duty to do, and they were all about persevering and doing the duty, no matter how hard that was. Now, I would put them in charge of a hard project, but I wouldn't have them pla- plan a party. You see, here we have these that were emphasizing joy, but not so much perseverance. And here we have these that were em- emphasizing perseverance, no matter what comes. But it doesn't look like there's much joy. And here we have... A combination. A combination of perseverance with joy. And what do we need to do that? Because human beings aren't so great at either joy or perseverance. What do we need to have perseverance with joy? We need a power that is outside of ourselves. 
And this is fully pleasing to God, and this is walking according to the Lord Jesus Christ, relying on His power, so that no matter what happens in our lives, we persevere, but not just gritting our teeth, not just getting through it, but persevering with joy. And that, that second activity, that second, that passive activity, is, leads right into the third one. And that's giving thanks. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Now, I noted last week, that there is emphasis on the Father at the beginning because the rest of this rest of this letter is going to be about the Son. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father. Verse 3, we always thank God the Father. And now he says, giving thanks to the Father. He's no longer talking about what they are doing, Paul and Timothy. He's talking about what the Colossians will be doing when they have are filled with the knowledge of God's will. They will be giving thanks to the Father. And why? And here it breaks down again. There are three reasons. So we have three activities, and now we have three reasons for giving thanks to the Father. The first reason is this. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy ones, the saints, the separated ones, in light. He has qualified you. And if you go back in to verse 2, to the saints, and here again he says, He's made you that. You are not particularly saintly. He has qualified you to participate as one of these holy ones, one of these called out ones, one of these separate ones. And if you are that, then it's because God has qualified you to do that. That's the first thing. He's qualified you. And he says that this is in the light, in the light. And he doesn't tell us what the light is, but we pick up in verse 13 what the light must be. Because the second reason for giving thanks is this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And this this beloved Son, the expression is the Son of His love. He's transferred us to the kingdom of the Son of His love. So what's the light? Well, the light contrasts with the darkness and the darkness contrasts with the kingdom of the Son of God's love. So that light is this kingdom. So He's taken us out of a kingdom of darkness and He has transferred us, He's translated us to a new kingdom. He, he qualified us to be, to be saints and He has taken us out of one kingdom and, and moved us into the other kingdom. And then the third reason for giving thanks to the Father is that we have redemption in Jesus. Verse 14, The Son of His love in whom we have redemption. In whom we have redemption. And redemption is buying back it's buying out of slavery. It's buying out of, uh, of being in bondage. We have redemption. And then it's summarized with this, the forgiveness of sins. Now, that's such a common expression among us. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in, in the forgiveness of sins. It's a common expression, but it's not common in Paul, interestingly. It doesn't come up much in Paul, this idea of forgiveness of sins. And and the reason is not because he didn't believe it, but because it's part of a bigger doctrine, which is justification, which includes both the forgiveness of sins and the gift of Christ's righteousness that we might be declared righteous before God. But here, here, Paul and Timothy focus on this question of the forgiveness of sins. And that's an expression that is so common to us. We confess our sins during the service. We receive forgiveness that we, we, we perhaps can can get used to the idea and not be shocked by, by finding this every time we find it. He's talking about a God who is holy. He's talking about a God who separates people to make them holy. And 
He talks about this holy God forgiving sins. How could, how could a holy God forgive sins? You see, that's the problem that we encounter in Scripture. The problem of modern humanity in the West is, how could God possibly punish anybody? That's not very nice. But the problem in Scripture is this. How could a holy God, how could a holy God forgive sinners and not sacrifice His own holiness? That's, that's shocking. That's appalling that a, that a God would, would do something like that. It's interesting how different cultures approach this. I have a student in one of my classes, and he's in Hong Kong. And he says the gospel is offensive there because people can't get over this idea that, that God would forgive. That doesn't seem right, that God would forgive sinners. He shouldn't do that sort of thing in their mind. Whereas here in the West, we sort of expect Him to. That's, that's His job, as one person says. But see, both of these cultures struggle with this idea, but come at it from different ways. And both of us perhaps miss the the marvel of the forgiveness of sins, that God does forgive sins, but not by looking the other way. You see, that's what they're worried about in Hong Kong. They don't want a God who just looks the other way and says, okay, I'll pretend like I wasn't serious when I gave you my law. I'll pretend that I wasn't serious when I called myself holy. I'll pretend that I wasn't serious when I called you to be holy as well. That's their concern, and it's a legitimate concern. But God did not look the other way. He sent His Son, the Son of His love. He sent the Son of His love. And that Son, in that Son, we have redemption. And why do we have redemption? We read it in one of the verses today. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, God didn't look the other way from sin. He dealt with that sin. And if we're in Christ, He dealt with our sin. And that's why we can have forgiveness of sins. Redemption in the Son of His love. Now, now think about these three reasons for giving thanks to the Father. They are because He has, has qualified us for the inheritance of His holy ones. He has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And He has given us redemption in Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. Does any of that, does any of that, have anything to do with what's happening in your life today? Does does this mean anything to you today? Yes, of course it does. But does it depend on the, the circumstances of your life? Your bank account, your business, your health, uh, those sort of things? No. Yes, we should give thanks for those things, but, but what I want you to notice here is that no matter what is happening in your life, whether good, whether difficult, whatever it might be, these things are eternally true. And if, you, if you're a believer in Christ, and, and your life is really going in a difficult way, if you're suffering terribly, and, and, and each of us has those sort of things, some much more than others, but... But if you're in that, that place where you're looking around and say, for what can I possibly give thanks now? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can always give thanks to the Father because He has qualified you to, to receive the inheritance of the saints in light. Because He has translated you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And because He has given you redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. Always, we always have reasons 
to give thanks to God and it is fully pleasing to Him and it is walking according to the calling that we have in Jesus. Now I want you to notice something up to this point in this letter. It started with thanksgiving for the Colossians. Then it moved to prayer for the Colossians. And that prayer for the Colossians ends with thanksgiving by the Colossians. And so we have this this circle going on here. Starts with thanksgiving, and then it goes to request, and then it goes back to thanksgiving again. And I don't think it's meant to stop there. Thanksgiving and request, thanksgiving and request, thanksgiving and request. And this is a a simple and, and beautiful summary of of prayer. Of prayer. What do we do in prayer? We give thanks. And we ask. And we give thanks. And we ask. I, I think most public prayer meetings are are, are, are pretty difficult. They, they tend to drag and it, it's hard to get through them. And it's, it seems like the, the time is taking too long. And, and so I really, work on, I really work on designing prayer meetings so the time goes quickly. And, and it moves through the, these different phases of prayer. But sometimes I trip myself up because I say, okay, during this time, we're going to give thanks. And then people start asking for things. And I'm like, no, this is the Thanksgiving time. You're not supposed to be asking. You're messing up my, my plan. Or, or in the, the request time, here we're supposed to be praying for, for politicians or praying for the nations or praying for the church or whatever it might be. And then they, these Christians, they just break into Thanksgiving. I'm like, no, that's, that's the wrong category there. And now reading this, I think I need to relax. Because what these believers are doing is the natural thing that believers do in prayer in cycling through. We, we find it difficult, or at least we should find it difficult, to, to make requests without giving thanks. And to give thanks without making requests. And, and as, I, as I think about these, these two aspects of prayer, Constant prayer, giving thanks, requesting, giving thanks, requesting. It seems to me that this ties into that idea of persevering with joy. Persevering with joy. To get through this life, we need to present a lot of requests to God. We need His help. We need His power. We need to be calling out to Him like that, that, that persistent widow, crying out to God, requesting that He would help us through this day and tomorrow and the next day and to, to walk with Him the rest of our lives. We need to cry out to Him. And then as we're doing that, we get happy. We think about, wow, He's calling me a saint? Wow, I remember how I used to live in that kingdom of darkness and now I'm in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And my sins, all of them, He's forgiven them in Jesus. He's given me redemption. And I become full of joy. And so, perseverance and joy, perseverance and joy, request and thanksgiving, request and thanksgiving. This is, this is the prayer life of the Christian. It's not complicated. In some ways it's natural. It needs to be constant. But it's going, it's going to, to keep us in that path. It's going to keep us on that, that, that unique combination of persevering with joy. Let's pray. And so, we do not cease to pray for ourselves, asking, O God, that You would fill us with the knowledge of Your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of You, our God. May we be strengthened with all power according to Your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to You, our Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.